Yeah, Vaughn? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gee, who is that on your phone? That's uh, Jack from Jack in the Box. Ah, yes, yes. Absolutely. Something that I experienced. I was in California uh, last week. For a few days and boy, boy is Jack in the box. Yummy. It's a yummy place. They got these tacos. They have like everything. I had like a, I went four days. I, I, I got like a teriyaki bowl one day, you know, uh, like a salad the next day tacos. They, they have these 99 cent tacos. I mean, it's just, so yeah, that's the, the what I was uh, flashing to you is the the Jack character. The Jack in the Box menu of offerings looks a little bit like the track listing for <laughs> episode 49's uh, featured album. We did not even plan that tie-in, but well done. I I agree with you. It's uh, very similar in in uh, in nature. It's a little bit of everything. It's a smorgasbord, if you will. It certainly is that. See, it's called White Album. <laughs> it is it's uh you know you can either go spinal tap or you can go uh white album it just sort of depends on you know if you're just interested in a solid color uh you know it kind of depends on what you what mood you're in go with one or the other you know it's interesting though it's actually not called white album i mean we yeah it's it's one of the great examples of this way that we assign names to these things musically and specifically talking about albums and uh, people forget that it's, it, that's a nickname for, for the album. It's not called the white album. Metallica's thing was not called the black album and Weezer's thing was not called the blue album. And, and Sunny, 11's thing was not called the blue album. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And sunny day real estate's thing was, was not called the pink record, but you know, it's And the Anders oranges album was not called the orange album. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But. Uh, it's called White Album. None, none more white. None more white. Well, I don't know, T. Maybe, uh, maybe certain colors might show up on uh, what you have had spinning round and round lately. I don't know. I thought I did think about, oh, I'll choose three albums that are all solid colors, but I decided not to do that. Be, that'd be too predictable. You know? Oh, you were going to do a theme. You were going to yeah. theme, theme it out, eh? I was thinking about the theme, but then, you know, it was just too much work. Yeah. So. <laughs> You were going to do it and you realize the error of your ways, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I just can't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. T, let's figure out uh, what you have been listening to on that turntable of yours as we take the show round and round. Do it. T, three albums. What have you been digging of late? Well, one of our uh, recent uh, episodes got me in a little bit of a, a Led Zeppelin mood, you know, getting the lead out, as as they say. And uh, three has always been one of my favorites. I think it's an extremely interesting album that, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it with tonight's band that sometimes 
bands have albums that sort of pivot you into a little bit of a new sound or some new layers or kind of a new approach. I feel like three certainly didn't reinvent the wheel for Zeppelin, but that it was a little bit of a change in direction. I think it was the record that made you realize that this was going to be a a band with some uh, longevity, you know, rather than, uh, you know, something where they just put out two hot rock and roll albums and, you know, we're going to fade off. I think it was where they kind of declared, you know, we're, we're different. We're here for the long game. And so I've been experiencing three a little bit and some cool album artwork as well. Shout out to you on that. The, um, uh, the, the turn wheel thing. Yeah. Inside. Yeah. It's, you know, pretty cool. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, the second is a rather uh, simple album artwork. And this is uh, this is the self-titled debut album from Danzig. And oh uh, God, I love that album. Yeah. It's uh, it's really good. It's one of those that you kind of forget about, you know, from time to time and shouldn't, you know, quite good, quite good there. And uh, when you're really feeling like kicking somebody in the head or just kind of kind of getting, getting some of the, getting some of the metal out, it's a good way to do it there. And uh, last Danzig is, kick me, you know, yeah, but, <laughs> guys yeah, the show. Yeah. People would just run up to the stage. Uh, just, they wanted Glenn Danzig to just kick him in the head and he would do it right. Gladly. T who would you have rather got kicked by in the head? Would you have rather got kicked in the head by Glenn Danzig or by Ronnie James Dio? <laughs> if you had to choose. I mean, could I choose to just not get kicked in the head? Uh, that's probably what I'd go with. If, if that's an op, is that an option? Let me check what the judges. No, that's not an option. You have, to, you have to choose one. You have to take a stand. Well, even though Glenn Danzig got his ass kicked by Phil Collin of Def Leppard and, and has gotten punched out a few times uh, as people have you know paraded around uh, YouTube, I still think that his kick would be a bit more powerful than Rodney James Dio, who is more on the sort of slim side of things. So I guess I'm going to go with Rodney James, but, uh, but again, I think my first choice would be just, just not get kicked at all. I think would be, you know, probably preferable. <laughs> exactly. By the way, with Phil Collin kicking Glenn Danzig's ass, you know, that when I was growing up, I was like, oh, there's no way. And then you see Phil Collin like shirtless. Cause he always is. And you're like, Oh, that guy could rough some people up. You know? Yeah. He's, he's pretty jacked up, yeah, pretty jacked no, up no and a good guitar player. Um, my my third one is uh, is by uh, the great uh, Lonnie Liston Smith. This was an old Soul Train discovery, and this is his record Renaissance with the great Space Lady, which is one of my favorite cosmic psychedelic '70s funk tracks of that time. Lonnie Liston Smith. How about you, Nub? What's uh, round and round for you, bud? Managed to get through a few things in the last week or so, which has been really nice been listening to the band cynic really good prog metal band they did an album traced in error and a couple years ago they like remixed it and took out all the growly cookie monster vocals and replaced them with real vocals and it's a much better album and it captures the musicality and cynic's a really incredible band for those of you that have heard them so i've been digging that for sure huge shout out to bill keith from 88 won the park uh, our local station here who yeah. was so generous to give me a, uh, a DVD copy of the Kansas documentary Miracles Out of Nowhere. Oh, nice. Which immediately, which is a great film if you haven't seen it yet, which immediately got me onto a Kansas kick for the last couple of days. And so I've been listening to Song for America, uh, which is the band's second album and easily the most kind of proggy 
of of their records. And Bill Keith, thanks for you know the uh, shout outs and and likes and those things on uh, on the Facebook when we uh, post and promote our episodes. Always appreciate seeing you, pal. Absolutely, two twins in an album listener and great friend of ours. And uh, lastly, is Yes's Tales from Topographic Oceans, which I <laughs> okay. You know, right, here's my nerdy. Here's my nerdy thing for yeah, the, yeah. the week. You're going to think this is totally ridiculous. But what I've been trying to do lately is is buy a lot of my collection on Japanese imports because Japanese vinyl has this really great mastering behind it. Everything is mastered in Japan and their oh, technology yeah. was great. For sure. And for sure. the packaging yeah. is cool. It comes a little like OB strip yeah. on the side. So it's, oh, yeah. Yeah. And the cardboard of the sleeve is more sturdy. It's it's yeah. more higher quality. The print, for sure. printing is more quality. For sure. For sure. So I've taken yeah. most of my favorite albums and tried to find a Japanese import version. Yeah. It's important. It's an important thing to do uh, <laughs> in life and, you know, to make yourself a, a better person, a more, you know, well-rounded person. It's, um, yeah, those, those OB strips are, don't discount the importance of those type of things. If you're going to have the full package of an album, not having the Obi strip is incomplete because clearly <laughs> there was one. So I must have it next time you come over, dude, you're going to handle some of these Japanese pressings. And you're going to be like, dude, I, I now I get it. Like <laughs> you, you'll mock me now. It's understandable. I get it. But you're going to be like, okay, man, like this makes sense. All they right, just we'll feel see. better to hold and they sound better and they're just great. So, hmm. okay. Well, we'll see. You know, when I, when I, when I hold it, in my hands, you know, I guess we'll see if, if I get this special feeling that you're describing. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Exactly. All right, T. Well, it's called White Album. I think we should get into it. And uh, we'll get to some of the items in the nerdy deeds. But I, I think one of the things that's important for us to do is sort of cast our minds back to 1968. And we'll talk about the Beatles, but I just want to spend a couple of minutes just talking about sort of the world in 1968. And, you know, the best word that can be used is chaos and confusion. I guess that's two words. Uh, 1968 was probably the most tumultuous year in our country's history until 2020, right? (laughs) I'd still give 68 the edge probably. Would you? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I think without question, it'd probably be those two, you know, you're talking about the Vietnam War, you're talking about social unrest, you're talking about multiple assassinations of revered and powerful and important world leaders, you know, in the same year that the Vietnam War was escalating to heights that nobody would have ever imagined, you know, um, Robert F. Kennedy gets killed and Martin Luther King gets killed and um, you've got sort of riots in the streets all over the world. This was not just in the U.S. It actually kind of trickled to the greater world and and it was a time of, of tremendous change, revolution, some might say. And for the Beatles to be releasing albums during this time is, is just a significant part of the whole story. And the White Album is a significant part of the whole story. And so, T, when you think about the role of you know, an era in music, it's very important. You know, the, the early 90s and grunge, that was not an accident. These things often happen because of what's going on in society, what's going on in technology. Same with the 2000s and the rise of you know, the, the MP3s and what that's done to the music industry and therefore creativity. You know, a lot of times music is always only a result of its time and, it, and its culture. In 1968's culture, must have and certainly did have an impact on not just this album, but a lot of music from the late 60s. 
Yeah, certainly. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, the oncoming of MP3s and some of the more recent things that have shifted uh, the music scene. I mean, uh, you know, so, some have worked in, in music's favor and, and some have uh, worked against it, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, some more than others there, uh, Doris. But um, I think that, you know, the context of this one is, uh, is certainly important. And the context of, you know, how this band was continuing to evolve itself, uh, evolve its um, fan base, and evolve with kind of the cultural sort of trends and, and those type of things and creative trends that were taking place at the time. Obviously, they were at the forefront of a lot of those things. They had a lot of smart people giving them good direction and good guidance and good production and composition elements and those type of things. And, and they were by this time in a situation where, you know, they could, you know, really sort of extend the boundaries that existed when it comes to how an album should be recorded, how it should be released, the amount of content, the, the length of songs and tracks. It's, it was one that really not just sort of raised the bar and pushed the boundary, but really set a new bar and set new boundaries for those type of things. And, you know, for that, it's, uh, it's going to be very interesting to talk about. We should tell everybody, uh, you're going to kind of drive the ship here on uh, disc one, or I guess side A and B as it's known. And then uh, this will be a two-parter and I'll, uh, I'll bring it, I'll bring us home with the uh, sides three and four. Yeah, or otherwise known as disc two. And that's kind of the way we're going to go about it here, right? Nub? You got it. And we look forward to that. So uh, let's dive head first into the nerdy deets. Dunder cheap for the white album. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? All right, T, the Beatles. Not the that's white right. album. The that's Beatles. Right. That's right. Let's, let's be official here. I mean, come on. It was released on November 22nd, 1968. Interestingly enough, that's five years to the day after John F. Kennedy was killed. November 22nd, 1968. Yep. It was released on Apple Records. Of course, the band's rather ill-fated attempt at starting and running a business. Apple was set to be this sort of entity that, you know, supported all things creative. And I, I think it was pure in its genesis, but um, really fell apart quite quickly from a financial and just business perspective. But uh, this album was released. <laughs> not, the, on, not exactly a well-oiled machine of a business, was it? I wouldn't say that it was. <laughs> I would not say that it was. No, but uh, maybe some slightly incompetent leadership. I, you know, just throwing that out there. Good way of saying it, for sure, for sure. And uh, and the Beatles was the first album released on Apple Records. So there you go. Along with clothes and publications, and Apple, you know, just <laughs> showing a lot of different things. And uh, clearly the Beatles were the main cash cow for it and probably kept it afloat for the few years that it actually stayed afloat. It was produced, of course, by George Martin. You know, Chris Thomas was a presence there. Jeff Emmerich was a presence at it for a period of time, but he, he left during one of the sessions. He's, of course, the very important, very famous engineer for the Beatles. And due to the chaos and, and sort of you know, dysfunction, I would say, that was going on with the band, Jeff Emmerich just sort of decided to leave and say, all right, guys, you take it from here and figure this out. Um, it was a high, highly tensioned environment for sure. And George Martin was able to plow through it and as always sort of keep the thing together. 
but this really is the beginning of the Beatles falling apart, right? It, it's most people will say it's sort of the breakup album, but you have Ringo leaving and I'm not going to name the members of the Beatles. That would be insulting. We all know who the Beatles are, right? If you don't, yeah. then go figure it out. You no, if, you, if you don't, you should maybe just go jump off a bridge. <laughs> right. Yeah. It might be a good idea. Yeah. So, you know, Ringo's leaving during the session and coming back and leaving again. You've got Yoko Ono showing up in, in constant, you know, consistent presence around the studio. Mm. And this was a, you know, there was a previous sort of guideline that the Beatles didn't bring their girlfriends and wives in the studio. Well, John in typical John Lennon fashion just basically said, well, forget that. I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. And, you know, Yoko's presence is legendary in terms of what it did to the band. And she obviously shows up at some rather peculiar moments of the white album. Uh, but you really do see the beginning of the band sort of falling apart from a relationship perspective. But what you do have on this double album is the things that always guide the Beatles work, which is the songs. And the beauty of these songs is that they were, most of them were written during this really interesting period that the band had when they went to India in the early 68 to study transcendental meditation. And of course ah. that, the Maharishi. Like most, the Maharishi. The Maharishi, yeah. And like most things the Beatles did, that that eventually fell apart too. Ringo didn't like the food. And, uh, you know, there were some rumors about some bad behavior going on. Didn't the Maharishi like like try to bang one of their girlfriends or something? Well, that was the rumor. It, it, it afterwards was proven to be untrue. So mm, with time, I don't know. As I don't know. Things, you you got to keep an eye on that Maharishi. I kind of believe it. He looked know. like a real, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies, man. I mean, listen. <laughs> But eventually it was seen that some of this stuff did happen. Some of it didn't. There were lots of other celebrities around. So there was lots of just inspiration. And, and the great thing about that trip is it, it led to all these songs and the incredible vastness and diversity behind this album really came from the band in India, in this different place, studying meditation, coming up with these songs. And, and, if there's, you know, one thing the album truly represents, it's the vast different tastes and styles and approaches that the band had as they composed music during this era. I think what's really incredible about this album, T, is, and I want you to comment on this, on this for sure, is this came out literally one year after Sgt. Pepper's. And the band was so prolific during this time. That in literally like a two-year phase, they released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Magical Mystery Tour, and the White Album. Most bands couldn't do that in 10 years, yeah. let alone two years. I mean, the level of output and the level of creativity that was coming out of these guys is completely unprecedented and absolutely magnificent. Yeah, pretty incredible. The tight window of time, you know, where the Beatles were, you know, recording these UK releases is one of the fascinating and really incredible things about this group. You know, the fancy thing to say about the White Album is, you know, that it's four solo albums and, you know, that these this variety of approaches really came from things being very fragmented and siloed at the time. And, and much of that is true. You know, uh, much of that is true in terms of, I think Paul played drums on all the songs that he wrote, if I'm not mistaken, we'll get to it. 
It seemed like the band was coming in individually at this time to work with Martin a lot more than they were as a unit. Uh, some of the progressions in engineering and in uh, sort of recording made that possible, where you could get into overdubbing and you could get into a lot of these techniques, which made it so, you know, the four members didn't really have to be in the studio at the same time a lot, which obviously was part of it. But a big part of it, too, was, you know, you had, to your point earlier, you had this band starting to pull apart a little bit creatively and pull apart a little bit in terms of how they wanted sort of the next chapter of their lives to go, uh, not just musically, but personally. And you can hear that a bit on this entire effort where it becomes pretty obvious who contributed what and who had the heavy hand in what. Obviously, they kept calling it Lennon-McCartney composition because, you know, that was sort of the, uh, I'm sure there was a business reason as well, but that was kind of the ongoing way to do it. But, you know, you can pretty much tell who is bringing full composition to the table and to the studio. And a lot of times that was being done in a very individualistic, you know, very siloed way. And it's part of the charm of the album, but also part of the uniqueness in that you can really start to sense this band was really starting to uh, pull apart and, and come unglued. So some people think that's really cool about the White Album. Some people think that that's sort of melancholy about it. Um, it's a ride uh, nonetheless as you, uh, as you go through it. One of the other things about the White Album, there's a lot of things about this record that stand out in, just in terms of Beale's history. It is the last album to be mixed intentionally in mono. So after this, Let It Be an Abbey Road, those received just stereo mixes and maybe some singles received full-down mono mixes. But this is the last Beatles album to receive a true mono mix. Now, what I hold here is an original copy of the White Album in mono. Does it have an OB strip though? I, I don't yeah, think. no OB strip. You would not find a uh, a mono mix with an OB strip unless huh. it was a reissue. What's interesting about the original pressings is that you know you've got this, the, of course, the white packaging on the gatefold sleeve, but you've got the Beatles is embossed into the cover. And you always know you have an original if that's the case. The later reissues just had the, the band name written on there. It's in Helvetica font. This made Helvetica font very famous. Wow. And the other thing that's unique about the original pressings of the White Album is it has a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven digit serial number on it. Hmm. And mine, I happen to hold copy A0253041. And for those keeping track at home. Yeah. Yeah. It also was one of the first albums, uh, Sgt. Pepper did this too, but the Beatles had begun, you know, including these little extras, you know, Sgt. Pepper had those cutouts in it. So the one album also contained a a large poster and then it contained, of course, these four really sought after and incredibly famous photographs of the band. And uh, they're four of the best pictures, I think, of the Beatles because it captures them sort of in between phase. John with the wire-rimmed glasses and Paul with the hair. They're all looking quite serious, you know, George with the stash. But my favorite one is certainly Ringo's. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's kind of got like the Austin Powers outfit going with like the stash and the shaggy hair. Yeah, good, good by you, Ringo. Yeah, absolutely. He's the only one sort of smiling a little bit. He was always kind of the happy-go-lucky. Well, one. peace and love, peace and love. That's right, peace and love. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just a great package for sure. Right. I mean, you got this iconic white cover and these little goodies that came with it. And of course, two full 
vinyl LPs of material. So th- what's interesting is Ringo actually was the holder of copy 000001. Hmm. And that sold at an auction in 2015 for $790,000. Ringo sold it, huh? Yeah. And made almost a million dollars, right? But but he did so with peace and love. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's all about peace and love. Peace and love. Peace yeah. and love. Exactly. Good for him. Good for him. You know, no need to really go through any Beatles albums in terms of reviews, right? Because let's face it, the album at the time and in retrospect has not just received positive reviews, but of course is heralded as one of the most important albums in rock music history. You have a variety of guest musicians. You've got Mal Evans who provides some things. Uh, Yoko Ono, like, like we mentioned, providing some vocals, air quotes there. <laughs> Jackie Lomax, a fellow artist on Apple Records, provided some backing vocals on Dear Prudence. And of course, there is one other guest spot that we will get to from a very famous, famous musician on a very famous, famous song. Mm -hmm. And we'll get to that for sure, especially here on this episode. Uh, Hit number one in, you know, most of the charts, if not all of them. And I think the official certification at the time was uh, two times platinum, I think on release, but since it's certified at 24 Times platinum, so it's twenty-four million copies over. So there. they moved some units, basically. They shifted units. They definitely shifted units. Speaking of units, why don't we get to uh, some of our own little Beatles <laughs> stories? <laughs> what does units have to do with Wonder Stories? I, oh, it's you and I. You know, units. Where were you going with that one? I have no idea. Let's just get that's, to it. That's a jammed uh, uh, segue, if I've ever heard. Oh, of that, there's you know? no question. Very jammed. Very jammed. Very forced segue, but you know what? That's okay. It's still a segue. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, well, you wonder stories. How do you really talk about the Beatles? But let's get to it and let's hear your wonder story. Let's get to it. So, T, in lieu of like talking about how we discovered the Beatles, because, you know, we have heartbeats and, you know, we breathe air. So we discovered the Beatles. But can you recall <laughs> kind of your early experiences with the White Album? You know, just this work in particular. Yes. Um, I, I had a, a pal in junior high school and his name was Dave and, um, and he kind of lived out in the country and there wasn't a lot to do at his house, uh, but he had a super cool dad, kind of an old hippie type dude. And he had a turntable and this is way before turntables were cool and hipster and trendy. And he was a giant Beatles fan. And, and we, um, I think it was the first time that I heard the white album. He wanted to play it for us, my, my buddy and I, um, because I was very interested in the Beatles, but, um, I remember him saying like, Oh, you've never heard the white album, like start to finish. And, and I think we actually sat, you know, the three of us in this family room at my pal's house. And, and we just listened to the whole thing. And he was telling us about some of these songs and some of the history behind them. He was definitely a Beatles scholar. And I remember Rocky raccoon in particular, you know, that was one where it was like, he, he sang along with the whole song basically for us, like wanted to show us that he knew the whole thing, which was, which, you know, when you're like in seventh grade, I think I was, and there's like a dad like doing this, it's like pretty cool. Um, so that, that was the first time I actually heard it, but you know, the, 
the big way that we really dove into the Beatles, and we talked about this a little bit with Yes, uh, was the Laserdisc. Uh, I don't remember what, it, I'm sure you remember what it was called or. The Complete remember. Beatles. Ah, the Complete spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-A-T, of course, the it. Complete yeah. Beatles. Yep. And it was just this really well done. Um, I'm sure it's available now, at least on VHS. Uh, I don't know if they ever released it on DVD or anything, but it is a wonderful sort of start to finish recap. Very high level. You know, it doesn't get in the weeds too much, but. George Martin original interviews are a huge part of it. There aren't any interviews with the band. There are some clips of sort of previous stuff of them talking, but it really focuses more so on Martin and narration and a lot of original footage. It was very, very well done. Great way to get to know the Beatles story. And this was one, I mean, for a long time there, we were either watching the yes one or the Beatles one. And it was pretty much, uh, back and forth on those two. So, you know, that was obviously our uh, sort of big means of, of education on these guys. And then of course, you know, you get all the albums, which, you know, I, I think I got some kind of box set, which is similar to what I talked about with the Led Zeppelin thing, where you get the complete studio recordings on CD and you start getting to know them and learning them and away you go. So, um, so those are a couple of things that come to mind, but uh, I mean, you know, what else can you say about about discovering the Beatles. I could probably go on for five more hours with wonder stories about the band, but I'll leave it there. What do you got, Nub? You know, we, it's important to say we had some key friends in middle school that really led us to a lot of music discoveries. We've mentioned many by name uh, during the podcast. And overall, you know, it's important to think back and just like sort of give gratitude to the people that were influential. And Dave is a great example. I mean, he was just this guy with great taste and had a, yeah, dad who had great taste. And, and that was important. It was very, very important. You're pretty impressionable during that time in your tastes. And that was a big deal. Do you remember the show Life Goes On? Oh, of course. This was a really you know, important show in the 90s. It, the theme song to it was Obladi Oblada. Corgi Thatcher. That's right. Character. Exactly. It's a very important show because it was one of the earliest examples in pop culture of like having a character on it with Down syndrome. Which was oh, the, the star of the show. Exactly. You know, syndrome, yeah. Yeah. And so it was very influential and it was an important show for those of us that grew up during that time. And the theme song was Obla Di Obla Da. And I remember when I first heard it, I didn't think it was the Beatles. I was like, the Beatles would create such a song. <laughs> and then you realize, wow, that's a Beatles song. And it's actually off one of their most experimental albums. So when I first got a copy of the White Album, I used to listen to that song over and over again because mm -hmm. it's different than the version that was on the TV show. And I, you know, we'll get to it, but there's elements of that song that just were really captivating for a young lad like myself at the time. There was just something intriguing about the Beatles White Album for me because at the time of listening to CDs, and it was one of the first vinyl albums I ever owned was the Beatles White Album, but we had it on CD. And remember, you, the CD was this double disc thing in that thick plastic case. And, you know, there was an intrigue behind that because it was like one of the first double albums that I ever really kind of got into. And it was like, wow, this is so much music, you know? The White Album to me represented really learning about just how creative and innovative the Beatles were. You know, even Sgt. Pepper's, when I first heard that, there was still something very conventional about it. Now, as you look back, it was totally unconventional in its production and a lot of aspects. But the White Album was like that moment where I thought there was something just incredibly different about this band that is so distant from the mop top thing that most kind of grow up 
experiencing the Beatles being. And so very important album to open my eyes to that music can be, you know, really out there and weird and bizarre and do things that you didn't think were possible. All of this happening really, you know, a couple decades before we really started listening to it, a couple decades plus. So it will always stand as an important experience, just sort of seeing what a double album is all about, hearing this band try all of these things on an album and understanding that this album held, held a very important place in the Beatles history and in music history was very influential. It stands out for all those reasons. And, and as I mentioned, it's the, one of the first vinyl records I ever owned, of course, joining Quiet Riot's Metal Health, which was the first final record that I ever Well, owned. and you often hear those two in the same sentence. Um, <laughs> right, right. Pretty much hand in hand synonymous. Yeah, no question. No question. See, with that too, it, it got me thinking about, you know, I'm, I'm always thinking about kind of where certain albums rank. When it's a band like the Beatles, you know, you, you can have a lot of fun sort of ranking their oh, albums yeah. top to bottom. So oh, yeah. how would you feel about a little Beatles ranking the albums? I feel very good about it. Let's do it. Now, what we're going to do T is we're going to take the UK releases, right? Because that's what you should do because those are the releases the the U S thing was more repackaging and trying to hit a certain market. So we're going to look at the UK albums. Isn't it funny whenever, um, to that point, you know, whenever you hear somebody talk about meet the Beatles, it's like, yeah, meet the Beatles. Like those of us that are kind of, you know, have studied the catalog and are into it. You kind of like roll your eyes a little bit. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, meet the Beatles is a compilation, right? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Just exactly. Out there. Yeah. yeah. It's always kind of funny. For so sure, was, man. My first, no matter what, my first, uh, one, my first one today, I was going to just say, "Meet the Beatles." That's my favorite. You know, <laughs> yeah, but. Absolutely, that's a good call. So, uh, so we're going to do this ranking, and we're going to go twelve to one. You know, twelve being your least favorite, all the way up to one, yep. and we'll alternate. And see, um, you made a great call. We're going to take Yellow Submarine out because, let's face it, Yellow Submarine's you know it's an album, but sort of not really, and a couple of good things on it, but. And we're going to replace it with Magical Mystery Tour, which is an album, but sort of not really. And so th that's how we're going to do the 12. So it's, it's the UK albums from Please Please Me to Let It Be, substituting Magical Mystery Tour for Yellow Submarine. All right. We ask for everybody to follow along at home and do your own lists. You know, wouldn't it be great to see everybody's <laughs> Beatles list? So T, we'll start with number 12 and we'll have you go first. What is your... Number 12 Beatles album. So this would be your should, least we, should we put any, should we put any music behind this? Uh, well, sure. Let's do it. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what would be a good, uh, not our game show theme. You know, that's no, but, uh, how about a little bit of that? Huh? Ah, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I like it. All right. All right. Who's up first. You're going to go first and your number 12 album. All right. My number 12 pick. So this is our least favorite on the list, right? Least favorite. Least favorite. My number 12 pick is A Hard Day's Night. Oh, okay. All right. Interesting choice. My number 12 pick is, this, this is the easiest pick I made of the whole list, is Beatles for Sale. Mm, okay. okay. I've always thought, thought that to be an incredibly you know, overrated Beatles album. I just, yep. I, I, you know, I, I, it's a phase I'm not, I, that I don't really care for. Yep. Yep. Uh, okay. Number 11 for me is please, please me. Really? 
No love for just being the first one? Um, well, it's not last, you know. And, and you know, let's preface this. None of these are bad. <laughs> yeah, good <laughs> this point. This is just yeah. relative ranking. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to cue something up, I mean, it's obviously, it's great. It's important. But, you know, yeah, that would be, that would be 11th for me. All right, number 11 for me is Rubber Soul. Oh, wow. I've again, I think it's super overrated. Um, you know, like when you're growing your hair long and you, 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 when it's short, it looks really good, and when it's long, it looks really good. But that sort of in between phase that's <laughs> right. what Rubber Soul and Beatles for Sale both sound like to me. It sounds like a band that's like totally in between and sort of can't figure out where it's been and where it's going to go. And I find the records, both of them that I've mentioned, Beatles for Sale and Rubber Soul, I find them very boring. Huh. And uh, I don't really like the songs. Not a big fan of just the overall packaging and presence. I just, those albums, yeah, it's Rubber Soul I've never liked. Okay. All right. All right. Well, All right, team, number 10. Number 10 for me, you've mentioned, is Beatles for Sale. I agree with you. It's a pretty dull effort. Uh, too many covers, not a real direction. Almost feels like the most compilation-like of any of their UK recordings. Not a huge fan. I think it captures them at a time period where they were still trying to exactly figure out where they were going to go. And it sounds like sort of a tweener creatively and uh, probably one of their weaker efforts. But, you know, there are a couple good moments, and I do like this era of the band, um, particularly their, their live performance was very good. But yeah, I agree. Beatles for sale, not their finest moment. So it's 10 for me. For 10, I have Please Please Me. little love for it being first. Um, you know, it, it's got Twist and Shout on it, which I love. It's kind of one of the early jams, you know. And, you know, I saw her standing there as a great single. Please Please Me is a great single. Um, love me do you know in terms of the early stuff it's it's got some memorable moments on it and and it's the first one you know so there has to be a little bit of love for that t number nine (laughs) (laughs) thanks for sticking me with that track next week by the way um number yeah have fun with that one dude yeah yeah. (laughs) Uh, number nine for me is let it be and, you know, listen, um, this isn't a, a, a bad record or anything like that, but, you know, I think that there are moments that are pretty bleak. It captures the band at an important moment. Obviously, it wasn't their final recording, but it was their final release. There are great moments, but just not enough. I think that there are still too many peaks and valleys, too many ebbs and flows. So I would go with Let It Be as number nine. How about you? Number nine, I have help. Love the song. Interesting. Okay. Don't love the album. A couple of good things on it. Kind of soundtracky, you know, went with the film and everything. But I do love the song Help. You know, that that's that kind of carries it for me. The other stuff on there that's really beloved is never quite connected to me as as, as much as it does with others, but it's a good sounding album and, and it's got help on it. So we'll give it that. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to go Rubber Soul, and a lot of the same reasons you said, it's it's an important record. I do think that the experimentation, the instrumentation, these type of things, I, I do think mattered. And it was a bit of a pivot point for the band, not as much as the record that that followed. 
but I think it did take them in a different direction. So for me, that's kind of where it ends up sort of middle bottom ish, but just not enough strength all in all, I think, to make sort of the top half or, or certainly the top tier. So Rubber Soul is number eight for me. Number eight for you, buddy. With the Beatles, which is a record I've always enjoyed listening to. You know, it's a second album deal. It's got some cool covers on it. I've always loved Rollover Beethoven with George on lead vocals. And so, uh, and again, just kind of the sound of it. Again, that early Beatles stuff, I know that, you know, so much credit goes to the, the later material. And for good reason. But some of the early stuff, you know, just getting into the musicality of it and the intricacies is pretty cool and you know it won't be long and all my loving i've i've always really liked all my loving you know in terms of the early material that's definitely one of my favorites uh, i want to be your man is kind of a cool ringo jam and hold me tight i've always liked because you know the first like five seconds i'll hold me tight are just it just feels so right now you know so <laughs> I, th- I think with the beatles is is you know easily up there with some of the better work um it's got an amazing track listing for sure we are gaining on it here. What's your number seven? We're getting there, aren't we, buddy? Uh, I've got with the Beatles. So there we go. We're kind of in the same spot-ish on that one. Uh, I, I think it's a great record. You know, I think it's probably, it's certainly the, the the peak of the, you know, early, I guess you could still say it's part of their early era, but um, took them, you know, pushed the bounds a little bit. Uh, some really, really good tracks where I would say it's kind of their, they're still sort of in that, mop top phase but they were starting to come out of it a little bit and starting to get a little bit more i think thoughtful and a little bit more major minor and those middle eights on with the beatles are just phenomenal i mean there's just some of the best middle eight middle sections you've ever heard and and a lot of that was composition but a lot of that was just you know george martin and crew kind of making those sections really work so i've got with the beatles in that uh, number seven slot pretty much close to where you had it. So what's number seven for you? Number seven, I got a hard day's night. You know, the title track is Hmm. the great piece of songwriting that. And then into, I should have known better. I think as a great kickoff can't buy me. Love has always been a great McCartney jam in my opinion, you know, just terrific vocal. And the second side is where things seem to start to, change a little bit for the Beatles. You, know, you kind of just hear that transition into a little bit more serious kind of stuff. Things We Said Today has always been a, a really important Beatles song to me for that reason. It just signifies that the beginning of that transition. And uh, th- that's kind of what Hard Day's Night kind of means to me. So that put it above some of the others. I might enjoy listening to With the Beatles more. But I think a hard day's night's a more important album in the whole. See, that's probably our first material disagreement. I had that one last, and you've got that all the way up at seven, right there in the middle. So very interesting, for sure. All right, T, we're in the second half. What's your number six? I'm going with Abbey Road, and uh, you know it's a great listen. It's the uh, final recording. Uh, I think that there are moments that are just extraordinary. The Um, the kind of trilogy at the end, uh, George Harrison's, you know, best record by far. And he had some real dandies there down the stretch. It's definitely one that, um, is, is extremely important. It's important to fans. It's important to those who study, uh, the band, um, starts off brilliantly, you know, with come together and something, I mean, goodness, Um, And it's got a lot of fun on it. So I think it's an important Beatles record and sort of 
um, sort of the end of that era. Final studio recording, the band getting in the studio, having fun again. I'm a fan of Abbey Road. So that's six for me. Six for me is Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. You know, some of this could be that it's a little bit overdone. It, just in my musical, you know, the history of my ears, I've heard these songs a lot. And I don't want that to create a, a ton of bias, right? But it needs to be said that some of it is just the fact that, particularly the first three songs in the album, it's like, I mean, you know, how many times can you hear those and, and have them stay somewhat fresh? I'm not as into the middle of the album as most are. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that there's some strong moments, but some of the stuff on there is just, you know, I, not, I just don't find, you know, kind of the the status for those that, that many do. Of course, I think A Day in the Life is one of the best things ever done just from a composition and performance and certainly production aspect. You know, I understand its importance, but just in terms of favorites or in terms of like how often would I listen to it, um, Sergeant Peppers for me would be number six. All right, T, we are well into the second half. What's your number five? Well, we're at the top five now, aren't we? Um, we are. I just want to point out real quick, I'm not sure if you have noticed or our listeners have noticed, but we were playing Beatles songs in the background until just about a minute and a half ago, and uh, we've been listening to the Thong Song. (laughs) Was that right? By Cisco. Yeah, Thong Song. (laughs) Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, just thought I'd just thought I'd kind of sneak that one in. Hey, I've the got song s- sung for you above. Please, please me. Oh yeah, I mean I, it all it all starts with that. I think, and then sure. you know, and then we can get to things like the Beatles, you know, and that sort of thing. Exactly. Um, you know, I've got Sergeant Pepper's as well, and I'm kind of with you. I think it's a good explanation. There are um, ebbs and flows to it. Now, I think the middle's pretty stiff with I Love Mr. Kite. I mean, that's one of my favorite Beatles songs. And uh, Within You, Without You, you know, I love those Harrison sitar offerings. So I actually think the middle is really good. I think it kind of starts hot, dies a little, picks up really nice in the middle, dies a little, and then brings you obviously home with um, the, the John Lennon, you know, classic of A Day in the Life. So a special album just cracks the top five for me. I, I think it has moments that are a little overrated in terms of some of its critical appeal, but it is what it is. It's fantastic. It's incredibly important, but it's number five for me. Excellent. I, I like your thoughts on that. And we're, we're kind of united on that one. I, and, um, uh... I don't think we're going to be quite as united on this one. My, my number five is Revolver. And, you know, Revolver has become kind of the darling album for the Beatles. It's the one that everybody says is the best one. And it's better than this and it's better than that. And it's an incredible album. No doubt about it. And the, the peaks on it are really, really high. You know, I think Taxman is outstanding opener. Eleanor Rigby just pushed the limits of what a song can and can't do. You know, the, the Harrison stuff on here is just fantastic. You know, he did Taxman. He did I Want to Tell You. He did Love You Too. She Said, She Said is, you know, what, uh, probably my favorite John Lennon Beatles song. You know, I just think it's so good. And Tomorrow Never Knows is, is an experience. But there's just some things on it. <laughs> so why'd you put a number five? Well, listen, <laughs> we're, we're getting to a place now where, it, you know, all of these are incredible. I mean, but 
I, I've never liked here, there, and everywhere. I think it's dreadful. Yellow Submarine is fine, but you know, uh, I'm only sleeping. I, I don't enjoy that. Angerbird can sing. Just really don't like that song at all. I love For No One. That that's a great McCartney. Oh, so yeah. you're talking about peaks that are incredibly high, but valleys that that are pretty rough for me. You know, and so the good thing is that out of the 14 tracks, you know, half of them are just genius. But then half of them, the ones I just mentioned, are, are kind of like I put those more towards the bottom of the Beatles catalog and the remaining albums that are on this list. I, I wouldn't necessarily say have that quality to them. So with that T <laughs> we are now on number four. Number four for me is tonight's album, the white album. I will uh, avoid digging too hard into it so that we don't spoiler alert the episode, but number four for me is the white album, buddy. And number four for me is Let It Be. I think it's a very underrated mm. album. I love the, the way that it just developed. It was kind of let's get in a room and, and figure it out. The things that went wrong in the sessions are intriguing. Although from what I understand, the, the, the recut movie that's going to be coming out hopefully sometime soon exposes that the, the sessions were not quite as negative and, and uh, traumatic as some people think that it actually was somewhat collaborative but you know two of us and dig a pony i love the way that those two songs opened it up t it's got let it be on it you know i mean <laughs> one of the best songs ever created well yeah you know? and uh i love the second half i love i've got a feeling and the long and winding road just the mood behind those get back and the whole thing with Billy Preston coming in and having some influence in the band. I think George has two great contributions with I Me Mine and For You Blue. You know, it's just, I think it's a really underrated album. And I, I and I love the the whole thing with uh, Phil Spector. You know, I like that he came in and, and had an impact on it. I don't enjoy the Let It Be Naked version of this where they took all the production out. I, I really like what it was when it was released. In, uh, in 1970, you know, just I think it stands alone as a as quite a statement from the Beatles at this time. So let it be as my number four. All right, T top three. What's your number three? My number three is help. And I just couldn't disagree with you more on this one. I think this is um, a real moment for the band. You really started to hear the Dylan influence with Hydra Love Away. So some of these things creeping into the band's kind of composition approach well before Rubber Soul. I think it's a great sounding record. This is where you really got a lot of layering and a lot of percussive elements. It's just a very clean sound. I think sometimes the record gets a little bit dismissed because of its soundtrack nature. Um, but, you know, you go top to bottom on this. And I mean, the title track is certainly incredible. I think an incredible very, very important moment for the band uh, and for John in particular. Um, but, you know, I, I think Help's special. I think it's something that really showed these guys um, creating longevity. The fact that it was attached to a film is interesting. But, you know, the fact that obviously the music, uh, just like the Elvis movies, you know, it's really more about the music than the movie. Um, I don't even know if I've ever seen the damn movie, to be honest with you, but I, I think help is terrific and was a huge pivot point for the band. So number three for you now, what do you got? Three for me is magical mystery tour. Just outstanding. And, uh, 
you know, I understand that it contains some things that were singles and I get it, but, and I also understand that the film was a complete train wreck and disaster. Talk about a film about nothing. <laughs> um, but you know, I love the title track. The fool on the hill is, has always been a favorite. Some of the other stuff that's, that's really under the radar flying. I saw it was a really cool instrumental track. And then you just hit this middle that is just incredible. I mean, you know, I am the walrus. Hello. Goodbye. Strawberry fields, penny lane. Yeah. I mean, come on. Like, is there a better four song run than that? And, uh, you know, all you need is love is never at a favorite, but it's fine. And you know, it's a nice closer. Oh, how, da- how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> yeah. But I mean, magical mystery tours, it, you know, it's about as good as it gets when you talk about just some of the runs that are on this and, you know, s- some of the best work the band ever did far and away is, is on this album. So. All right, T, number two. What's your numeral dose? Well, we're right in line on this one, buddy. I got Magical Mystery Tour, and I, I agree with you. It is an incredible collection, and, and boy, um, I know Pepper gets a lot of credit for being experimental, but man, the stuff going on here, Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane, and I mean, this is stuff that you just legitimately hadn't heard before. And and there are some great, more unheralded elements. I mean, Baby, You're a Rich Man, the flying instrumental, there's great stuff. It's, I think it's top to bottom, you know, phenomenal. And catching the band, you know, that 1967-ish time period, um, you know, could be argued that that was kind of the last uh, where you were really hearing true collaboration. Because after that, everything became fairly fragmented and fairly siloed, which ties into tonight's record, you know, quite a bit. So I think Magical Mystery Tour is outstanding and it's number two for me. How about you, Nub? Number two is The Beatles. It's a volume play, man. And you know I love double albums. I mean, let's just be honest. Let, let's expose my biases. I, I love double albums. I love the fact that it contains so much and it's so all over the place and it's so weird and so insane. And I'm willing to sort of roll with some of the stuff, you know, just because they could do it. I, I love the statement it makes that they were able to do this. And we'll get into it more, of course. But they were able to make this album. And it was in it. This album was put in a position to be incredibly successful, even with all of its out thereness. And, and to me, there's a romantic aspect of that, that that will always make it one of my favorites. So the White Album is number two. All right, T, number one. I could have called this one. Well, yeah, I've got this poster in my basement and, and obviously this, this album was really special for me and, and, you know, couldn't, couldn't take it out of the player for many, many years. And I wanted to study it and I wanted to know every song inside and out top to bottom. And I love that it's quick and it's efficient. You know, we're talking about a uh, 35 minute record. So nice and to the point, which is kind of my style, but it's revolver. And listen, you know, you start off with a George Harrison track, which I love. I mean, this really showed that the band was getting to a place of, you know, not being a factory, but being artists, being a group, being a band, giving George that lead with Taxman, phenomenal uh, and and a cool choice from the band. And a song with just a great groove to it, you know. Uh, Eleanor Rigby, incredibly innovative. Uh, Love You Too was George's first sitar song. I love the George sitar work. Love You Too is a is an absolutely incredible Beatles song for those that actually have given it time and given it its proper due. I mean, a, a an incredible pop progression. 
Um, and then you get into some of McCartney's real pretty stuff with Here, There, and Everywhere and 401 and just classic, you know, Paul progressions. And then, of course, you wrap it up with Tomorrow Never Knows, which of its time was you know, a, a, a masterpiece in a lot of things that weren't taking place at that time from a recording standpoint, uh, including uh, backmasking and, and those type of things and drum looping. I mean, these were things that you really didn't hear a lot at that time. So for me, it's it's really not that difficult of a decision um, amongst all the great records uh, of which, you know, so many were important and so many had different contributions to culture and to music and to studio work and studio output revolver to me is uh incredibly efficient incredibly important and i think it is the band at their best so nubs what tops your list number one for me of course is abbey road i think it's the perfect album it just is top to bottom you've got it all you know you've got the the quintessential opener and come together again, a great Lennon song. It has Harrison's, you know, one of his two best songs far and away. Actually, I would say two of his three best songs with something. And here comes the sun. You know, if if you, the theory is that a Beatles album is only as good as George's contributions, his contributions can't get any better than those. (laughs) And um, the whole medley thing the you never give me your money all the way through the end. I mean, how do you beat that? How do you beat a band that's so on top of its game near the end of its career to be able to put all that together and ha- and have the vision and creativity to kind of put, put together this long suite, this medley? And of course, with it is, you know, some, some deeper album tracks like Because and I Love, I Want You, She's So Heavy. You know, it's kind of a longer epic. Even Ringo with Octopus's Garden. You know, I mean, the album is just so complete. It's so perfect. And I, you know, I wouldn't change a thing about it. And, you know, it's got one of the best album covers of all time. I and mean, it's just the whole package is just, it makes you smile. And it's a great enduring effort that reminds you of just the, the true genius of this band. And so Abbey, I'll listen to Abbey Road forever. You know, I'll just, that album will always be in rotation and it will always stay fresh and it will always be interesting to me for sure. Tito's was fun, man. It's good. Yeah, enjoyed that. Really enjoyed oh. hearing your list. There were there were a couple couple zingers on there that I didn't expect for sure. Couple head scratchers. Well, that's the great thing about these guys is you know there's so many different angles to sort of pick apart the work, but uh, obviously it goes without saying that you know nearly everything that they put out was important. Um, ranking it is not easy, but, uh, yeah, I was, I was pleased to hear your, uh, not just your rankings, but your, uh, explanations. So well done. T let's take out that first LP with the green apple on the label. Let's drop it in there and, uh, let's put the needle on the record and discover the first LP of the white album. Right, see, the Beatles begins with the sound of jet planes in a little travelogue called Back in the USSR. Oh, 
Maestro. Well done. That high guitar is like, whoa, that's a headphones moment, you know? But far and away, one of the heaviest things the band ever did. You know, the White Album contains two of the heavier songs that uh, the Beatles ever performed and pretty rollicking opener. You know, you, you look at all of the, the kind of all over the place creativity of this album and it's certainly there, but it really opens with a very standard hard rocker, doesn't it? It does. It's, you know, when you, when you first hear it, it's uh, you're, you're sort of amazed by the soul of it. I mean, Chuck Berry and this sort of thing was a big deal to this group. In fact, I think this song is a bit of a, homage to that sound i think it's a parody of uh, a chuck berry song that was like back in the usa or something like that and there's also a lot of beach boys sort of thing in there so some of that's tongue-in-cheek but man they they liked they liked to uh get the r&b sound going they love to get that rock and roll sound going uh, that sort of pure soulful rock and roll sound going and paul was big on that obviously but uh, a lot of interesting harmonies here on the background vocals a lot of that was beach boys uh influence i know they hung out with those guys a little bit i think when they were out doing the maharishi thing you know some of those guys were out there and uh you know so these guys i mean paul in particular they were very narrative in their writing certainly based on some tongue-in-cheek and based on some you know musical homage and some musical influence it's a really really jamming way to kick this one off and this was one of the songs, as you mentioned, that uh, has Paul on drums. You know, th- th- this is when Ringo was off and frustrated and not in the studio. And the band decided, hey, let's take advantage of this by recording some of the songs that Paul wasn't really happy with Ringo's drum parts, this being one of them. And uh, Paul's a great drummer. He really was. You know, Ringo famously said he was not the best drummer even in the Beatles. And you can you could sort of see that. I'm a huge Ringo fan. He's very, very influential. But I do like the feel that Paul brings to this and a few of the other songs, one of which also features Paul on drums and uh, to me is just a stellar moment. And that is track two, Dear Prudence. Plain and Simple T, one of my favorite Beatles songs. I'm very picky about my John Lennon. Very, very picky. You know, both his work with the Beatles and obviously his solo work, which there's a lot to pick at. But uh, Dear Prudence to me is just the best John can be. You know, it's, it's heartfelt. It's got a nice little groove to it. I love the middle section where Paul kind of gets into that kind of drum solo sort of deal. The song's about as perfect as it gets. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's amazing. And you know, it kind of frustrates you a little bit, quite honestly, because, you know, you wish John would have sort of kept down this sort of path and this idea in his writing of something that's, you know, that's layered and interesting and, and catchy and um, and heartfelt, right? I mean, a lot of these things became so political and so calculated for John as he became a solo artist and even in a lot of his late Beatles writing. But, you know, this is just him just trying to write a good song and having you know, sort of the lyrics and the, and the music and the progression and, and the, that, that picking progression is just so good. Um, it's a great moment here. You know, you, you get the jet sounds coming out of back in the USSR and it literally takes you right into track two. Now that wasn't being done a lot around this time, but that sort of feeding from track one into track two and that sort of dichotomy that you get of this opening tongue in cheek rocker 
with this really, you know, kind of serious, sort of solemn, but also kind of a hopeful song in the way that it's presented and in the way that the song outros. I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very special track. I I agree with you that it's got to be one of John's finest moments with the band. Yeah. It's, it's so emotional and it just captures a perfect feeling within it for sure. From that, you get into a song that's a little less emotional, which is track three, Glass Onion. One of the catchier parts of the song, the cha-cha. You know, it's one of the best uses of that. What stands out to me here, too, it's, it's a fine song, but the vocal production on John's voice is very cool. You know? And it's, I don't know if it's a gated effect or what they're using, but it just, it makes his voice sound so neat. Well, he double tracked, you know, and that was, if you remember one of the things that, that Butch Vig did when he was recording, Nevermind with Nirvana is, you know, Kurt Cobain didn't want to double track his vocals, which is why his voice sounds so great on that record. And when Butch Vig uh, cleverly came up with a way to get him to do it, he told him that John Lennon did it. And Kurt was like, well, if John Lennon did it, I guess I can do it too, you know, but but yeah, this is um there there are a lot of examples, certainly during this era of the Beatles and really on the White Album that that really um blatantly in some cases showcase this double tracking effect, which worked really well on John's voice in particular. Um, you know, he, he obviously was a great harmonizer and a great lead vocalist, but when they figured out kind of the way that uniquely his bl- his voice was able to blend with itself. Uh, I think they really captured something. This drum sound, I just love. I think one of the compelling things about the White Album as a listen is that drum sound. I still don't know how the hell they, I've heard all kinds of things where they put like, you know, wet towels on the drums and, you know, all kinds of stuff where they were like trying to mess with giving it a certain distinct sound. But boy, it it really is interesting. And, and, And again, just gave these guys a whole different direction as far as this, particularly that snare drum pop. It's just, it was very unique at the time. And you can tell that they were getting into great detail as far as how they wanted some of these little things to come across. And I think that's part of what makes the white album special is as crazy and chaotic and scattered as it can be. Sometimes it's actually very detail oriented in a lot of ways. It's still one of the best headphone albums of all time. It's sort of the original headphone album. And yeah, you're right. That drum sound is, is magnificent. And you got, and you got to think too, George Martin deserves so much credit. Think about how good this album sounds. I mean, T this album is 50 years old. Just think about how good it's lasted. And that's because of the production and the mixing and the thoughtfulness that went into it for sure. And a lot of it is the composition as seen with track four, Obladi Oblada. I mean, how about the drum sound there, right? It just really comes through as as being so crisp. Yeah, the drum sounds great. Um, and boy, that walking bass, you know, which Paul was extremely good at. Um, yeah, it's just one of those great Paul tracks where, you know, obviously the bass really kind of leads it and, and, and walks it along. And it's coupled with a very catchy, very poppy, uh, a very nice, pleasant, you know, chorus. Um, but yeah, those drums keep popping, don't they? It's good stuff. Paul McCartney is one hell of a bass player. I mean, he really is, man. 
Oh yeah. You know, just such a style and so crafty about the way that he would construct his parts for sure, man. He was a real sort of athlete on the bass and, and some of the things he could do while he was singing. And of course he had the left-handed style and that, you know, that famous uh, bass that he used to play. And, you know, there, there are a lot, there's a lot there that has become so iconic that in many cases you forget how, how good he really was at manipulating that instrument and, and playing the bass as a lead in many cases. And, in venturing away from just bass mimicking drums, which obviously was kind of the style for rock and roll at the time, but Paul really ventured from that. And, uh, and you heard that more and more as the band went on. And certainly, uh, you know, Obla Di Obla Da is a great example of using that bass as a lead and making clear that it does not need to always follow that rhythm, that traditional rhythm section approach of kick drum and bass guitar having to always do the same thing. See, track five is, uh, Wild Honey Pie. We we're not going to play a clip for it, but we could just perform it. Honey Pie. Honey Pie. Honey Pie. Honey Pie. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's uh, what, less than a minute? So there It you is. Go. And you start to get into some of the more lighthearted aspects of the White Album, which is something that gives it a tremendous amount of character. And that gets into track six, the continuing story of Bungalow Bill. There's Yoko singing or something. The unmistakable sound of uh, Yoko Ono's vocals. Yeah. I kind of love Bungalow Bill. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, th- it, it's one of those heat checkers, right? It's kind of like, you know, if the Beatles didn't do this, if Led Zeppelin did this even, and they're amazing, you'd be like, what the hell are these guys doing? But, you know, the Beatles did it. They put it on the White Album. It's an appropriate spot for something like this. It's a bit of a heat check. It's kind of like if you can get down with this, um, then, you know, you understand what we're trying to do here. It's a great, I mean, it's John, right? And it's uh, the sing-along aspect, even with, I even think Yoko's voice on there is a little bit funny. You know, when it breaks out into that, you look so fierce. I, I don't know. I'm kind of cool with it. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of okay with it on that one. You know, it's yeah. a song that clearly doesn't take itself too seriously. But, you know, again, this is them just being uh, truly kind of outside of the box, pushing the boundaries, seeing what they can get away with. It's a heat check that I think they made work, quite honestly, here on track six. I, I also do like the way it sets up, you know, uh, a song that I can't wait to get your take on. And our special guest that we teased earlier certainly makes quite a stunning appearance. And that is George's contribution, which is While My Guitar Gently Weeps. You and I are not, I think I can speak for you on this. We are not big Eric Clapton guys. You know, very, very picky about my Clapton and like the various projects. What he does there is, I mean, it's one of the best guitar solos of all time. It is so iconic. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, a big part of that was the progression he was given, right? I mean, you, you know, this is a, um, the, the chromatic nature to this is a, you know, guitar player, particularly a blues guitar player's dream, right? When you can take a blues sort of approach and a bunch of blues licks and a bunch of blues moves and put them over something with this, this sort of swelling, beautiful chromatic walking down the stairs type of approach. Um, that's something, I mean, he must've just been drooling at the opportunity to play over this. It's a gorgeous song. And, you know, I think that the production cannot be overlooked here. I mean, it's a pretty simple song. This is not something that's super complex. Now the guitar work gets a little tricky and obviously, you know, Clapton's a blues expert and a tremendous player, but you know, you can't discount the layering, the percussive things that you hear as this song builds emotionally, the backing vocals, even that sort of whining part at the end. Um, all these things are really, really important. So it's a song that is, could have been very simple and very unassuming, but the production, certainly the guitar work really, really brought it to life. And it it makes for, you know, obviously one of the greatest songs in rock history and certainly, you know, a top moment for the Beatles and a really, really fine moment for George Harrison. Now, we talked about it when we were picking through the albums and, you know, Revolver and Abbey Road and some of those moments. But listen, George was making tremendous contributions oh, at this man. time. Incredible. You know, yeah. and, and, and this is certainly one of them here, a very, very special moment. On You think on it got the other guy's attention? You know, I mean, they must have. Yeah. Been like, Whoa. You know? Yeah, I think it must have. And can you imagine the first listen of like the first cut? Uh, in the studio of this, I mean, they, 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 there must have been tears in their eyes. I mean, it's just, it's just a just a beautiful um, contribution to rock and roll. And hearing Steve Lukather, uh, he covers this uh, with, with Toto and with some of his other projects. And I mean, clearly, I love his playing. But you know, hearing some other just wonderful guitar players like Luke and some others offer their takes and their interpretations of this um, is really amazing. It's so, sort of one of those you know, guitar player, uh, tunes, you know, if there's like a such thing as sort of a musician's musician, this is sort of like a guitar player's guitar song, you know, and, uh, it gets a lot of respect for that reason. Rightly. So. Absolutely. Very well said all around this side of the vinyl concludes with the John Lennon penned happiness is a warm gun. A soap impression of his wife, which he ate and donated to the national trust. Yeah, baby. <laughs> I love that transition. Until it opens up into sort of the, the open blues thing and the Mother Superior Jump the Gun deal, it's, it's sort of a forgettable track, but that elevates it. And it's like, okay, the, you know, just the, the progressions and the kind of movements that are within there. It's one, of, it's one of John's more thoughtful tracks, not just on this album, but in the whole Beatles catalog. It's a complex composition that has a lot to it. I love it. That's right. It, it is complex. I mean, it's, it's not, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's like one of my favorite Beatles songs, but you have to study it and you have to respect it. I mean, there are time signatures flying around here. There are moments that are tongue in cheeky. There are moments that are pretty serious. There are moments that are pretty dark. 
There are moments that are pretty light and they're having fun with it. I mean, if you were to kind of squash every element of the Beatles creatively, um, pushing the boundaries again, which they're doing a lot here on this record, getting almost proggy with some of the time signatures and, and those type of things. I mean, you've got bars of seven here, you know, stuff that just wasn't very common in sort of pop Rocky type music at the time. And you got to respect it. You got to study it. Uh, Happiness is Warm Gun is a uh, important song um, in terms of uh, showing their range and in terms of showing their kind of interest in really pushing the boundaries and in, in, in being rather progressive with some of their approaches. So even if you don't love it and you don't tap your foot to it, it's one that you can't ignore um, in terms of how it contributes toward kind of the, the front half of the white album here. It's an important tune from them, from them. If yesterday is Paul's true first solo song, then the song that opens side two would be considered Paul's second solo song. Cause he pretty much plays everything on it. And that is the, the rather catchy and rather lovely Martha, my dear. Man, Maestro, are you on it today or what? It's almost like you've heard this album before. <laughs> yeah, right. You like that? I love that kind of open up. You get, you get the strings, you get the brass instruments coming in. This song is so musical, but in the end, it's also just incredibly simple. I mean, this is Paul at his best in terms of simple melodies elevated with these, you know, pretty extraordinary layers that weren't happening a lot at the time. I mean, strings and horns on, on music, the, the Beatles were real pioneers on that. So it sounds to me like, like a Sergeant Pepper type of song, you know, it's almost like, let, let's try and recreate that. I agree with that. And you know, honestly, at this stage of the record, you kind of need Martha, my dear. I mean, think about what you're, you're coming off of, you know, honey pie into bungalow bill into guitar gently weeps, which is, you know, a really very emotional into happiness as a warm gun, which on first couple listens, you're not really sure what to think of that one. And then you kind of need this to sort of reset you a little bit, I think. So getting something that's lively, that's upbeat, that's catchy. Paul did a good job of this at moments during Revolver and Sergeant Pepper and kind of knowing when to make that move and when to kind of uh, almost reset the thing. And I think Martha, my dear, did that. And, and probably in some cases, it was a, a welcomed uh, refresher. Well, the heaviness returns with John and his heaviness with I'm so tired. A song that makes me tired, by the way. A song that's probably more famous for its final three seconds than... The rest of the song. Right, right. Right? I mean, it, it, most people know this song as the Paul is dead, miss him, miss him, miss him, or whatever it is at the end. But for the purposes of analyzing the album, I kind of like the, the some of the slow builds that the song has. It never really quite takes off, and it, it's very void of a strong middle section. It, it, it's very, very John, but, but some of the slow building is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very John. And... uh you know, again, I think after Martha, my dear, it, it kind of works. You're sort of bringing things down a little bit. It's got some of this slow blues stuff that John sort of got into, but 
I think when it picks up and it gives you, you know, the, the give you everything I got section, it's pretty soulful and it kind of works, you know, a little interlude there of, of Martha, my dear, and then kind of bringing it down a little bit with, I'm so tired. I think kind of works at this stage of the, of the first half. You get this back and forth action going. So you, you know, you go from pretty to heavy back to pretty with, you know, with what many think is one of Paul's best compositions in Blackbird. Pretty gorgeous too. Pretty, pretty gorgeous. Yeah, it's a hell of a song. I mean, it's a, um, you know, it's one of those that didn't even necessarily need, and a lot of Paul McCartney stuff was like this. It didn't need a dynamite vocal line. It could have just been great on its own. And that, that finger picking element of kind of moving up and down the neck and making it all work and hitting high notes and hitting low notes. It's, it just all works musically. This could have been an instrumental. And then typical Paul, he finds a way to just strike the perfect chord with a vocal um, melody and also obviously a lyrical tone that just made the whole thing work. So, you know, even if you're not a huge fan of the song or not a huge fan of some of the Beatles sort of lighter moments, this is one that you got to respect. And it's an important part of the White Album. I don't know what was going on with the band and animals during this time, but uh we stick with this animal theme from Blackbirds into Piggies, another George track. I remember the previously mentioned Dave that got you into this album. It got you into the Beatles. I think he was like a huge fan of Piggies. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of George's interesting comp. I mean, this is what I love about George Harrison. He gives you while my guitar gently weeps and then piggies, you know, I mean, (laughs) it shows, I I suppose you could say a lot of things, but certainly shows the creative range of George Harrison at the time and of the band as a whole. There's some cool instrumentation stuff going on here. Um, But, uh, you know, it kind of sounds like something you'd hear on a clockwork orange, like a Wendy Carlos type of a thing or something, but yeah, it does have that vibe. Yeah. Little, psychedelic but some cool product progressions and kind of a weird funky sort of vocal and, and lyrical approach uh but you know it's it's very white album this one i don't know if i love it but it's certainly works on this particular effort also quite white album i like that as an adjective is this continuation of the animals theme with rocky raccoon back to paul you met your match. And rocky said dog it's only a scratch and i'll be better respect it i don't love it yeah i kind of respect the melody the song always straddled between kind of goofy and and serious and i I just never quite understood this one what what are your thoughts on rocky raccoon i have good memories of it just because you know the during wonder stories we talked about you know being at uh at my buddy's house and you know the the dad like sang the whole song for us and it you know it tells this kind of old school you know sort of uh old Western type story. And, 
I think it works. You know, I, I think that it's, uh, again, it's a different look. It's part of what establishes this range and this variety of the white album. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I don't think Rocky raccoons, uh, winning any Grammys or, or anything anytime soon, but as far as, um, this kind of unique storytelling, you know, I think Paul delivers a really nice sort of narrative vocal here. Um, I think it all kind of works. So yeah, I'm kind of pro Rocky raccoon, to be honest. All right, man, it's Ringo time. You ready for Ringo time? His first solo <laughs> composition. This is like, that's right. Legitimately like the first song he ever wrote. And certainly the trademark Ringo star vocals always beware when you let the drummer sing and write with don't pass me by. You As you well know, T.I., I would go on to become quite a fan of Ringo's solo work. You know, some of those early Ringo albums are just terrific. And this is the beginning of him as a songwriter. It's not my favorite Ringo song by, by any means, but I love the fact that it's on the album. I love it. I think it, it set a good stage for what was to come from him. It did. It did. It's, it's, it's cool. It's important. It's not the greatest song ever. But the fact that he's singing, the fact that, you know, it kind of has that, Ringo sort of groove to it. Um, the fact that he drummed on it, I like, you know, cause <laughs> yeah, finally. Yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. you know, he's still the drummer and he's still great. Um, and we'll talk about Ringo a little bit in uh, part two, uh, cause we definitely want to get your drummer's thoughts, set the record straight on Ringo. But, uh, yeah, I, I think don't pass me by is, uh, you know, not, not one of the more important tunes on the record, but it is nice that, uh, that they gave Ringo a spot. And, uh, and obviously it wasn't the last time they did that. And we conclude this first disc of the white album with three tracks that serve a little bit more as ditties than actual kind of full songs beginning with why don't we do it in the road? I love why don't we do it in the road? I do too. <laughs> I, just I, do, love, man. I love that whole drum. I mean, you know, obviously. And that's like, Ringo. That's Ringo. It, yeah. It's like, yeah. I don't know. It's like a minute and a half long. But I, I just love that whole like, because it's like, it's like really setting something up. For those that popped it in and didn't listen, didn't read the, the track listing, they must have been like, oh man, something big's about to happen. Then it's just like, why don't we do it? You know, it's like, it's just great. It's just <laughs> I funny. know, man. Yeah. It, it I mean, is great. And I really do like Paul's vocal here. You know, it's very soulful and he's kind of like, you know, he's kind of crooning. I don't know. I just, I love this little track. I just, it's so white album and it's so great. And yeah, Ringo's drumming very melodic as always. You know, he, he, he really, uh, he's exceptional in so many ways. And like you said, we'll get to it. In part two. All right, let's check in with I Will and Julia. First with I Will, which is the uh, the McCartney composition. When at last I find you, your song will fill the air. Sing it loud so I it sounds like an outtake from, you know, the album that would come out, you know, three years later, which is Paul's first solo album. It really has that feel to it. You know, it's very... Uh, 
Very organic, very minimal. Yeah, it's okay. You know, I think uh, if there are moments that you probably could have gone without, you know, I mean, I think there was a home for this, but uh, at this point, you're you're on track 16 of of part one of this thing. And, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, it's, it's good. It's Paul, but also like, like when's this thing going to end, you know? So (laughs) yeah, totally. It's good. You know, it's good. Well, track 17 concludes the first disc of the wet album with Julia. Not a huge fan of the song, but love the acoustic guitar tone that they achieve here. They give you a great low end too. There's there's really kind of a nice um, layer underneath. I don't know if it's a bass or maybe it's some kind of stringed instrument, but it does provide a really nice bottom end because otherwise it would just get a little bit twangy. But yeah, I mean, it's good. Again, I Will and Julia kind of takes you, kind of eases you off of this a little bit. Yeah, it's a good way of saying it. Yeah. yeah. And and that's okay. You know, obviously you're you're kind of at halftime here and, you know, you're regrouping and kind of seeing where part two goes and, and kind of coasting you out of it with I Will and Julia's, you know, is kind of okay. And I, and I sort of get it. But uh, yeah, last two for me aren't, aren't, aren't strong points. T, it's been super fun going through the first half of this famous record with you. And uh, I look very forward to you taking us through disc number two. And uh, we'll hit that next week, shall we? I think we shall. Let's have, let's have some damn fun here on disc two. There will be some interesting moments and maybe even some additional fun in games. So, you know, hope everybody, uh, hope everybody sticks with us here as we, uh, you know, kind of plow through. I mean, it's hard to believe that 17 tracks were only through part one, but uh, you know, we'll hope to see a bunch of you back for part two. Indeed. Well, take it intermission, spend a little time with the gatefold sleeve, you know, look at the poster and the photos and, uh, and check back in with us next week. Well, and certainly make sure that if you can get the Japanese LP, those are obviously (laughs) much, much far superior to, to regular old vinyl. So OB strip. Listen, when you come over and look at these two, you're, you're going to get it. You will. You always do. I know you will. Well, I just have one more question for you before we wrap. Why don't we do it in the (laughs) run? Why don't we do it in the (laughs) run? Hey, it's Nubs. And uh, we want to thank everybody for tuning into part one of episode 49 as we looked at disc one of the White Album. And it's only fitting that now we would look at disc two of the White Album. You know, it's actually not called the White Album. It's called The Beatles. But it is none more white. 